It's time now for Faith in Action, the program that looks at how ordinary people are putting their faith into action in their everyday lives. Faith in Action is underwritten by the Knights of Columbus, Council 6923 and Fishers, and is produced by Catholic Radio Indy. If you have any comments or suggestions for this program, please contact Bridget at catholicradioindy.org. That's B-R-I-G-I-D at catholicradioindy.org. Or call 317-870-8400. Now, here's today's edition of Faith in Action. This is Faith in Action on Catholic Radio. I'm Jim Ganley. Our co-host is Bridget Ayer. Hello, Jim. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today. And while we're thanking people, uh, thank everybody who showed up for our uh, dinner last week. And if you uh, didn't uh, show up and maybe you were one of the bidders online in our auction, thank you as, uh, as well. And uh, everybody who mailed in contributions and things like that uh, and made contributions at the dinner and bought things on the auction at the dinner, thank you so much for uh, your participation because Catholic Radio really is listener-supported. It has uh, the only source of funds are listeners like you and underwriting from area businesses and then events like our dinner. So that's what keeps Catholic Radio on the air. I want to thank you very much for doing that. Also, I uh, want to thank everybody here on the staff at Catholic Radio. They worked their tails off here, uh, and volunteers as well. Uh, I know my wife, Sharon, was in a lot the weeks ahead of time, and we appreciate that, and all of the other volunteers as well. Just couldn't have done it without them, so thank you very much. Well, yeah, we, we are all called to be good stewards. We try to be good stewards here at Catholic Radio Indy, and, but we're all called to that. And that's really going to be our topic today, being a good steward. And there's, there are many different ways we can be a good steward. Um, but specifically, we're going to talk about being a good steward of food, but in a way that maybe you haven't heard about. Our guest today is John Williamson. He is the executive director of an organization called Food Rescue. Welcome to Faith in Action, John. Well, thanks for having me today, Bridget. I really appreciate it. Well, we had John on, I want to say maybe a year and a half ago, as one of our guests talking about this ministry that I had never heard about called Food Rescue. And since I talked to him um, the last time, I checked in with him just to see how things were going. Things have really changed. But, but let's start out by talking about the concept of Food Rescue and what you do. Yeah, so let's talk about food rescue first, and let's use a statistic to kind of start out with. Forty uh, percent of our food is wasted, while one in five people are statistically uh, food insecure. So where is that 40 percent of food wasted? Well, we would say it's wasted from farm to fork. You know, you've heard of gleaning, where you might uh, go to a, a farm that's got imperfect food and it's taken and in, in, in salvaged. You've got food waste um, at the point of sale sometimes. And then you got food waste, uh, you know, as the end user at home, you know, in the refrigerator. So food does get wasted, and it's a lot of it, so 40%. So the term food rescue would just be like, how do we save some of this food and get it back into the food supply chain? So food rescue can be on any of those levels at any of those various points. And there's even more that I, that I haven't mentioned, but um, yeah, that's the concept of food rescue. Now, how long have you been um, involved in this ministry slash nonprofit, and did you come up with this idea? Was this your brainchild, or or is this a national organization, or is it just operating here locally? 
Yeah, I, I had seen food pantries that had food rescue operations in the name, mm-hmm. um, but nobody had ever taken the name and incorporated it and made it like an organization. Okay. So we were the first ones to do that. And if you were to Google now, you would probably find 17 pages of food rescue. That's how much it's grown over the over the since I started in 2007. So didn't invent the name, <laughs> but I did take it as an organization and make it an organizational name. Um, and like I said, that started in 2007 uh, when my wife read to me an article about uh, freeganism, which I had never heard that term before. And freegans um, would be people that get food out of the trash can, but they're not homeless or they're not in need of any sort. They're just trying to make a point about this statistic of 40% of our food that's wasted. And what kind of struck me about the article was, really, that food's not going to people in need. It's just you know, it's like making a point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we got to find a way to get this food to people in need. So my wife and I started picking up food from restaurants, basically, and delivering it to our local food pantry. And it just kind of grew from there. So how have you, I know that your organization has kind of evolved. Um, before we mm-hmm. got started here, you talked about starting with restaurants, and then you moved into a couple different areas in terms of food rescue. Talk about that evolution. Yeah, from 2007 to 2014, we were exclusively focused on the surplus food from restaurants at the end of the night. You know, so that could be a little Caesars, that could be, um, with that, they have several pizzas with their hot and ready uh, policy. It could be Panera Bread, where they have a lot of food left over at the end of the night with their pastries and, and uh, bagels and that kind of a thing. Um, to places like Olive Garden, you know, or whatever the case may be. Just anybody who might have food that they're willing to donate it at the end of the night. And we were connecting that food with food pantries um, all across the country. And at our peak in 2014, we connected 231 agencies um, with over 200 restaurants uh, around the country with 40 chapter presidents in 19 states over a seven-year period. Um, so that was a, a huge success, but yet... Uh, it's a kind of a nightmare in its own way because we were constantly connecting with volunteers and, and having them uh, not respond for various reasons or managers from agencies. And it's like, wow, this has grown so large, but it's become a managerial nightmare. Mm-hmm. And we were really trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do this? Are we going to become like an educational and mentoring organization? Because we know we logistically can't handle all of that with our capacity. Um, and then in 2014, one of our chapter presidents in Anderson, Indiana, um, sent me an email and said, did you know that we've been picking up food from South Madison schools um, the whole year? And as a former school teacher, you know, in my mind, I knew that wasn't okay because I knew they wouldn't let you <laughs> for, for all the different reasons of being fear, being sued, and all kinds of different things. Um, so I was really astonished, and then I found out that the director of uh, – a nutrition services at South Madison Schools was actually the Indian State Nutrition Association president. So we immediately went to that area, filmed a video um, that was viewed over 20,000 times on Upworthy.com, and suddenly we transformed our organization um, to teaching children and em- children empowering them to lead the food is not trash movement. So we took that story and said, "What can we do to get all school systems around the country to follow South Madison's lead?" And then through the contact that I had with the director of nutrition services there, um, she allowed me to speak at the Indiana State Nutrition Association twice, which connected us with many, many food service directors around Indiana to the point, you know, by the end of before COVID, we had over 500 schools in Indiana that were participating in K-12 food rescue and 600 nationally. So 
that's kind of a long-winded evolution, but that's kind of where we, we ended up. Now, do you, uh, John, do you coordinate all of the effort locally here from Indianapolis, or, or do you have, like, uh, in some of the distant areas you mentioned, do you have a sub-headquarters out there or a subsidiary out in those areas? That is a great question. So starting out with, we were doing all the logistics, so we would use the great platform of Google to search food pantries <laughs> to where we would find this food, and we would do a lot of the connecting and call this person and be in the middle of it. We can only imagine as a small organization, you know, as you grow, that sort of becomes a nightmare, as I said previously, the same way that the restaurant model was. So what we decided as an organization that we were going to be an educational and marketing and resource provider and teach people how to do it. So give them a toolkit on how they can step-by-step connect with their own food pantry, the meetings that they need to be having, um, and just all the steps and the objections that occur along the way. And after you do this for a while, you haven't heard a new objection. They're always the same objections. (laughs) So, you know, we have an open letter to school administrators that we provide to schools that just say, hey, here's step-by-step why we should be doing this and why we shouldn't be throwing unopened and unpeeled food items into the trash can. Here's why it's legal. And uh, we just educate in that way, and then we let go of it so that we are not responsible for the logistics of it and that the relationship becomes between the food pantry and the school, mm-hmm. and that I'm not in the middle of it or our organization is not in the middle mm-hmm. of it, and that prevents it from collapsing on itself, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, how in labor-intensive is this at the actual end where the food transfer takes place. I mean, does somebody drive over to the school and put the leftover food in their car and take it somewhere? How, how does the labor end of it work? Yeah, so there are, mul- there are multiple avenues to how the food actually gets to the end user. Um, the first avenue is a simple share table at a school where when kids have extra items, they place it safely if it's temperature controlled for safety in an ice bath. Um, and then kids that want those extra items can come take that if they're, if they're still hungry uh, during the day. Um, so that's one way to get it to the end user. The second way is to take that food and put it into a refrigerator or a, a temperature controlled for safety area and be prepared for a food pantry to come and pick it up a particular day with their own volunteers at a regularly scheduled time. Um, we have other schools that have in-house food pantries, and they take care of it in-house. And there's yet another model where they actually have temperature-controlled uh, cooler-type uh, backpacks where they're sending stuff home with kids if there's uh, the ability to send it home in backpacks. So there's tons of different strategies to get it to the end user. And it's interesting, various schools view it differently on which is more time, <laughs> time uh, and labor-sensitive. You know, it's, it, it, there's not a uniform opinion on which is easiest. Mm-hmm. And some do a combination of all. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. some schools do only share tables. Mm-hmm. Some schools do a combination of share tables and distribution to the food pantry. Mm-hmm. And some schools do distribution to the food pantry only. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you're talking a lot about schools. Do you also still work with uh, restaurants and other organizations? We definitely know that the food rescues that we scheduled between 2007 and 2014, many of them continue. But we really came to a feeling as an organization that the solution to this was education, as, as, as with anything. And we really just kind of let that go so we no longer report on it or track on it. 
yet we see stories constantly of, wow, there's a food rescue that we scheduled in 2009 that still to this day continues on with that particular um, restaurant. An example would be Circle City Relief locally still picks up Little Caesars pizzas that we connected them with um, every Sunday, and they deliver it to uh, families in need in Indianapolis uh, through their uh, serving site. Um, but we don't have any, you know, affiliation with it as far as coordinating it or logistics and that kind of thing. We're talking with John Williamson. He is the executive director of Food Rescue. And I want to ask you about the environmental impact of throwing food away. What is it? Yeah, so um, rotting food in landfills produces methane gas which is, according to studies, 20 times more harmful than carbon dioxide equivalents. So, you know, so at the same time we're not feeding the hungry, we're actually harming the environment um, because methane gas obviously harms uh, the environment. So, you know, there's a huge environmental push, and we actually recommend schools actually teach the environmental piece first because we really don't want students pressured into donating their food because giving is a really good thing. And uh, we don't want kids to give away their lunch uh, at the expense of their own nutrition. So if we, if we tell them, hey, you know, there's an environmental benefit to this first, that we're protecting the environment, um, we can also feed the hungry if you choose not to eat that item. But um, definitely we don't want kids' pressure to donate their food. <laughs> and schools shouldn't. <clears throat> we need to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the... Um, pre-COVID operations and the post-COVID operations and how you can help. So stay tuned for more Faith in Action. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to Faith in Action. I'm Bridget Ayer. Jim Ganley and I are in the studio, and we're talking with our guest, John Williamson. He is the executive director of Food Rescue, which is an organization that rescues food. Um, and, and your operations pre-COVID and post-COVID are absolutely night and day. John, tell us how things were running prior to the COVID shutdown, maybe how many schools you had, and then now where are you at? Yeah, there were, there were 1,100 schools total that were involved in K-12 food rescue, 600 in nationally and 500 in the state of Indiana. And literally overnight, obviously, the schools shut down in April of 2020. So those operations were totally shut down. But then in the reentry of schools, um, and just the general lack of information that they had regarding COVID and just they were just ultra safe. And food sharing was generally considered to be prohibited nationwide. Um, I have Google Alerts associated with all these topics, so I kind of can see how it was before and how it is now. And there would be all kinds of stories nationwide about about this movement that was spreading, not just with K-12 Food Rescue, but other organizations that were making sure this food in schools was getting um, to children and families in need, and then suddenly there's absolutely no stories. None. It's not happening. It was just a complete shutdown. So last year was just kind of a get through the year and see what God has in store. Um, 
so, and, you know, we've pivoted once before from rev- uh, from restaurants to schools and just wondering, Lord, is this another time we're going to have to pivot? Are we going to have to, to wait upon the Lord and renew our strength, as it says in the Word? You know, or just what's going to happen here? So, and then beginning of this year, we're starting to see some schools that are beginning to come back um, on board. We've had some success in Avon. There's some Carmel schools that are getting involved again. Um, an IPS school is particularly getting involved again that uh, rescues over 30,000 items each year. So we're starting to see some movement, but it's very much so one at a time. Um, it's not even one district at a time, because there's even so much difference of opinion, perhaps, um, within each building on you know, what is safe and what isn't safe. So mm-hmm. we have CDC guidelines that tell us uh, that this is okay now. Um, we have links to, to show people, but there's still sometimes... When there's fear um, and that gets a hold of people, um, they would lean on the side of, of caution at every, every step. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're fighting against. What kind of items are you talking about uh, as surplus food? Uh, obviously, you're not talking about somebody who ate half a sandwich and threw no. away the other half. No. What kind are you talking about? So there's two times of, uh, types of food in schools. Uh, one would be considered back-of-the-cafeteria waste, which is not really our focus, although we do have schools that are involved in it. And that would be, you know, just things that didn't get served to the kids, you know, a half a pan of lasagna that could be frozen. Um, that was examples of that I saw at South Madison schools when I went for my first visit. So back-of-the-cafeteria uh, food waste does definitely occur. But our focus was unopened and unpeeled food items off the trays of students. I would call that the obvious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if somebody doesn't want um, their grain bar, if they don't want their um, peaches that are covered, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a prepackaged way, if they don't want their milk, it literally makes no sense at all to throw that into a, uh, a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, a simple way of saying it is we're feeding landfills and not people. Um, and I, I would never have imagined that there was a full-time job to explain to people that that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is, because we do it all the time in our schools, and it just, you know, the people that are very interested in doing it, it's a personality type, I guess, much like mine, where they are, they can't sleep at night, it bothers them so much. Mm-hmm. And then there's also just a passive, well, it's just the way it is, and, you know, we don't really have a plan for it, and there's also that, you know, or we're too overwhelmed and too busy with the requirements, you know, that go along with the National School Lunch Program to do one more thing or to have anybody from the outside um, telling us what we should be doing. So we encounter all of that um, type of resistance, but it's really unpeeled and um, unopened food items that we call tray to trash, student tray to trash waste. How easy is it for a school to get online with this program? What what are the steps that are involved? And then what are some of the action steps that our listening audience can take? So we've got about, mm, what, eight minutes left, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, food safety is definitely an important part of this, whether it's pre-COVID or post-COVID. So you have temperature controlled for safety guidelines that they want to keep the food kept at a certain temperature. So if you're going to do a share table, temperature control for safety items would need to be in an ice bath. Um, handling with gloves would be, or plastic gloves is certainly a good idea. And, you know, connecting with a food pantry that has good food safety um, guidelines as well. So all of those things are just important, you know, parts of the process and making sure that your program is, is uh, you know, 
safe for uh, handling food. But when it's unopened and unpeeled, you know, that's, that's a relatively easy process to get through. And then there's just the time involved in explaining it to the kids, um, which is not, not very difficult at all. <laughs> kids are used to throwing stuff away. They're actually getting used to recycling now. So it's not a shocking thing um, that the food will be used for a higher purpose um, in the future. So what about action steps um, in mm. terms of our, our listeners? Uh, what would a, a volunteer could, could um, I guess, point out a school that might be willing to do this or be yeah. a parent at a school or something or a teacher? What are your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so we basically have three things that uh, we would say are needs of ours. And I would start with prayer. Um, you know, the Bible says that a prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And, and I know that you have a lot of righteous listeners uh, through Christ um, out in your listening audience. And we could really covet the prayers of just how we're going to move through this crisis where all this food was being rescued, going back into the landfill. I know that it, um, that it, it hurts my heart, and I know it hurts God's heart. So... Um, if we can just have, have your listeners pray that uh, we can get through this time and their hearts would be open to just getting these programs back reestablished in schools and that fear would be overcome. Um, the second thing would be the best thing you can do is to go to your school and find out what are they doing with their student tray to trash waste, these unopened and unpeeled food items. Um, are they just going into a landfill or do they have a plan for it each day? via those four or five different things that I said you know, are being done. It's just literally having a heart of investigating and asking questions. Um, and then once they find out the answer, if they're not connected, just ask them if they'd be willing to have a conversation um, with our organization where we can talk to them about things. Um, and then the final thing, obviously, is we need uh, uh, financial partners. So we have ways that you can you know, become a $5 a month partner. You know, every dollar helps and where the sustainability of our organization is definitely, um, you know, in the balance now due to the fact that all of these stories of impact were how we raised money in the past. We could share all these stories, and then we presented to our subscribers and, and basically foundations and so forth, and that was where the resources came from. Well, as the stories dried up, you know, that became a very difficult proposition for us um, to continue resources to sustain our organization. So those are the three ways that could basically help us during this time, and anything, any of those three would be a tremendous boost. I have to ask, so who would you talk to at the school? <clears throat> I guess it depends on the size of the school. Do you talk to the principal, or do you just say, hey, this is what I'm looking for? Do you talk to the cafeteria staff? I mean, who, is there a person that's kind of in charge of what happens to the, the food after school, or after, like like you said, trade a trash. I mean, who who do you talk to? You want to know what's funny? Who knows the best? The children. <laughs> <laughs> so you know when you when you take your your food your tray to the trash can, if you don't have something, you have something that's unopened or unpeeled. Is there any place for you to put an unopened milk? Have you ever seen anything like that? You know. So if you hear no from your children, that's when you can say, well, maybe I can go talk to the cafeteria manager or a cafeteria worker or a principal and say, hey, I've heard about this organization that, um, you know, has this connection with food pantries and surplus food waste, teaching our kids to be thankful, protecting the environment, uh, using our children with special needs as leaders. Um, these are all things that we do as an organization um, to develop student leadership and thankfulness and and uh, at the same time, feeding the hungry and protecting the environment. 
I know that you recently um, started a podcast. Tell us about the mm. podcast um, and what it what what the goal of that is. Yeah, so we started the K twelve Food Rescue podcast a year ago. We have twenty nine episodes where we have uh, interviewed folks that are successful around the country. A lot of them post COVID successes, where they're talking about what they've done to continue their K twelve Food Rescue program. And you can connect with those people about hey, if, if the organization you know, needs another boost um, as far as credibility. You can talk to the people that directly are doing it on site, not just the people that are recommending it. And they all give their information at the end of the podcast. And, you know, we have people down there from Texas. Um, we have people on there from um, South Carolina, just all over the country, Indiana, of course. Um, so, And we just continue to seek stories from people that are successful at executing K-12 food rescue or share tables of any kind. Um, and share their story in hopes that as that story gets out there, that schools will feel more empowered, that, you know, we're not alone. We don't have to be the first one. You know, others are doing this, and it is safe, and the CDC um, says that it is safe. So So I think you had mentioned that before COVID, there were 1,100 schools participating. I think you said 500 in Indiana and 600 nationally. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So Indiana is kind of a leader in this. Oh, no question. No question. The uh, the speaking at the Indiana State Nutrition Association those two years during one of them, 2009, between 2009 and 2011, somewhere during that time, that was just a huge boost. Um, and to have the endorsement of the Indiana State Nutrition Association president um, was just so helpful. And, and we were able to just share story after story after story. So, you know, I think they were at some point it seemed like more people wanted to be involved and didn't want to be involved. So, it was uh, not 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 as difficult to get schools uh, involved at that point. So it grew very very quickly. Well, this show is called Faith in Action, and John, you have really put your faith in action. How how has being a part of this? I guess trusting in the Lord to do this from you know being a school teacher to to now this. How has it impacted your faith life or your walk with the Lord? Yeah, from from 2007 to now to see what's happened in these 14 to 15 years um, has just been astonishing to me. And it's been like uh, holding, I've always said it's been like holding a kite where, you know, God is the wind and he's taking that kite the direction that he wants it to go. And it's definitely changed a few times. Um, but uh, I, I can't imagine if I would have fought, oh, I'm just so upset that this restaurant thing's ending or that it's getting frustrated um, rather than just uh, heading where he wanted. Uh, all the school stuff would have gone away. You know, so uh, it's definitely just been an act of, for me to just say, okay, God, what's happening in, in this moment? I don't understand why um, this is being shut down nationwide. But I also didn't understand the frustration of the restaurant piece in <laughs> 2014. So we don't always have to understand. We just have to, to stand with our palms open before God and allow Him to... Uh, direct our path, and and he will make it straight, as it says in Proverbs. Our guest today has been John Williamson, Executive Director of Food Rescue. You keep on flying that kite with God. All right, John? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bridget. I'm so appreciative of you having us on today. You've been listening to Faith in Action, the program that looks at how ordinary people are putting their faith into action in their everyday lives. Faith in Action is underwritten by the Knights of Columbus Council 6923 and Fishers, and is produced by Catholic Radio Indy. If you have comments or suggestions for guests or topics for this program, please email Bridget at catholicradioindy.org. 
That's B-R-I-G-I-D at catholicradioindy.org or call 317-870-8400. This program is pre-recorded.